want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel this morning. Kelly, my man, how are you? Great to see you. The whole world of the internet now knows that you are here. <laughs> so uh, welcome. Uh, we wanted to mention just a couple of announcements before we dive into our continued study of what lies ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. Uh, first of all, for those of you that are live streaming with us, um, we wanted to let you know we are trying to improve our technology a little bit. I'm, I got mixed results last week. Several people emailed or texted and said, hey, it worked great, a lot better than before. But some people said, no, nah, we're still having to refresh it every few minutes. It's still not great. So there are a lot of variables, as you know. Uh, it could be bandwidth on, on the viewer's end. Uh, it could be uh, issues here. Could, who knows? But uh, we are aware that we'd like it to be really high quality for everyone who live streams, and we're working on it. So we did try something a little different uh, today. We're hardwired into our modem instead of trying to use Wi-Fi to send out the live stream signal. So those of you that are live streaming, if you wouldn't mind sending us an email, you can get our email address at either plumcreekchapel.org or notbyworks.org or text me. My cell number is on the church website and the notbyworks website. Just let me know, hey, it worked fine, or yeah, we're still having trouble. It'll help us identify what else we might need uh, to do. So uh, as we mention each week, the... Um, what Lies Ahead book is available at the Not By Works website or on the back table. And someone pointed out to me uh, this morning that we need to replenish that supply. We're down to one copy back there, so we'll bring some more of those on Wednesday. But I encourage you to pick that up. It kind of is a comprehensive overview of the end times, and it's what the material that we're talking about uh, in this uh, Sunday morning uh, 9 o'clock series. Also uh, wanted to mention that I had the privilege of being on Stand Up For The Truth uh, this past week on a Thursday, I think it was. Uh, I'm typically on there once a month, and it's always a great blessing. And the topic was the slow death of doctrine and why it matters. And we kind of used my article, Doctrine is Dead, as a springboard. Uh, in fact, David asked me to read that on the, at the beginning of the program. It was just, it's a short article, so it was just five minutes or so. Uh, but anyway, I encourage you to check out that article. Uh, it's at Harbinger's Daily or at NotByWorks.org. And uh, check out the podcast. Uh, I think you'll find it interesting, some of the things that we uh, talked about on the program this week. Uh, also, our uh, videos from our midweek series are all uh, up and up to date. We've got uh, 11 so far in this series. If you're here locally in the Denver area, come out on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock for our midweek study on how to read and understand the Bible. Uh, or you can always live stream it, or you can watch the videos. As with everything we live stream, the videos are posted uh, shortly after the service uh, ends. So with that, let's pick up where we left off last time. This is actually our 44th in an ongoing series of What Lies Ahead. And this will be our second week uh, to be talking about the second coming and the kingdom. So we began last week by just putting things in context and pointing out here with the yellow arrow that from Daniel's perspective, uh, this is where we are. We're at the end after his 490-year plan, often called the 70 weeks uh, of Daniel. Remember the term week in Hebrew, uh, which is used there in Daniel 9, is the word Shabua. It means period of seven years or period of seven days. And context has to determine which it is. Clearly, uh, without question, in Daniel 9, it's referring to 70 weeks of years or 77 year uh, periods and so the first 483 of those have already been fulfilled in history uh, precisely as Daniel said they would be but the final seven years uh, are awaiting future fulfillment and we'll begin with the 
the signing of the peace treaty with Israel by the Antichrist. But after that seven years, at the end of it, in fact, we find the Battle of Armageddon and the return of Christ <coughs> to establish his kingdom, and that's what we're talking about now. If we zoom out and look at the big picture of the end times, you can see highlighted in yellow there is the section of God's end times program that we're focused on right now, and that is the return of Christ and the soon thereafter inauguration of the earthly kingdom, the first thousand years of which are on the old heaven and the old earth, and then it will continue on for all of eternity in the eternal state or the new heavens uh, and the new earth. And then one more from Daniel, I mean from Revelation perspective, um, you know, the book of Revelation, uh, the, the greatest amount of real estate in that book deals with that seven-year period, uh, but the, the end of the book does deal with the return of Christ as he comes back in chapter 19, uh, and we'll get to that in, in, before too long as we talk about key passages on the second coming, and then it deals with the millennium and uh, the eternal state. So we're at the end of the book of Revelation now. So we started last week with seven reasons for Christ's uh, second coming, and let me just review the first three. Uh, we, we said, first off, in, in context, he comes back to judge the Antichrist. And, you know, I commented last week that, you know, a lot of these end times events, we tend to think of them uh, instinctively as more theoretical because they are future prophecy. They're, you know, not something that we're actually living in that moment. Um, but when Christ comes back, there will be a whole world of people who have been tormented, persecuted, under oppression by the demonically uh, indwelt Antichrist. And in that context, Christ is going to be the hero, the rescuer, the one that comes back to, uh, to win the battle of Armageddon and to throw off the shackles of the revived Roman Empire and the Antichrist leadership and establish his kingdom. So we must never forget that all of these end times events that we study in God's word uh, refer to real events. Uh, certainly we understand the rapture, which we've talked quite a bit about, uh, is a real event, and we can relate to that because we know that it's going to be that moment when we see Jesus face to face and we are uh, caught up together to meet the Lord in the air uh, prior to the final seven-year uh, period. But everything in the end times plan of God happens in a historical context. And so uh, we looked at a lot of passages and just talked a lot about how that, what that will mean for those alive at the return of Christ. But then we said, secondly, uh, a reason for Christ's second coming is to regather and restore Israel to the Holy Land. And we looked at uh, many passages in the Old Testament, and we barely scratched the surface, that promise Israel uh, that one day they will be in the land, in belief, never to be uprooted again, with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords ruling all the world through uh, Jerusalem and the rebuilt temple. And so the second coming uh, is the fulfillment of that promise. Israel will be supernaturally uh, regathered in the land. And uh, we talked about that, looked at, for example, Matthew 24, where Jesus says he'll send his four angels to the uh, four corners of the earth and regather them into the land. And so that's a big part of the reason for Christ's return. Uh, you remember the Old Testament prophets viewed the, the coming of Messiah uh, telescopically as if it were one event. Uh, it's not until we get in additional information in the New Testament that we begin to connect the dots and recognize that Christ was going to come once as the suffering servant and Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He would be rejected 
by the nation of Israel. He would be crowned with thorns. He would become the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. But then he would uh, ascend back to the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting, uh, we call it, where he is waiting to return a second time, this time to be crowned king of kings and to be received by uh, the nation of Israel. And so in our Sunday worship hour, we've been uh, studying the book of Acts, and we begin our study of Acts with that famous passage in chapter 1 that talks about the ascension of our Lord and how they, uh, the, the, those men in white raiment promised the disciples who stood there on the Mount of Olives looking up as Jesus went to be at the right hand of God, uh, they, they promised them that he would come back in like manner. And uh, so the kingdom is still yet future, and uh, he will come uh, again. And then number three, kind of the counterpoint to number two there, is that another reason for Christ's uh, second coming is to judge and punish faithless Israel. And we looked at a few passages that talk about how this is going to be the final time and final opportunity for Israel to receive her king. Uh, and yet we know that before Israel can be delivered nationally into the land and into the kingdom, and the kingdom inaugurated, each individual Jew must first believe the gospel. Uh, Israel doesn't get, individual Jews don't automatically get to participate in the coming kingdom simply because they're Jewish. Like every human being, they are born dead in their trespasses and sin, and every human being has to receive uh, the redemption purchased for them by Christ, has to receive uh, eternal salvation by grace through faith. And so some within Israel will, some will not. Uh, and uh, those who do not, it will be a, a very uh, horrific and tragic time when Christ comes back. And they are left out in the dark, if you will. They they're, don't get into the kingdom. And ultimately, their dwelling place will be uh, the lake of fire with all unbelievers, as we read about in Revelation. Um, so that, that's where we left off. And so let's pick up with number four which is one of the reasons for Christ's second coming is to judge the Gentile nations. So you have to realize that the kingdom is Israel's kingdom in fulfillment of uh, Abraham, the promise to Abraham. But the whole purpose of God's covenant promise to Abraham is to bring blessing on the whole earth. So uh, at the same time that God is dealing with Israel at Christ's return, he's dealing with the rest of the world. And these are two different uh, judgments. So the judgment of the nations is what we often call the sheep and the goats judgment. And it's uh, recorded in Matthew 25. If you remember uh, uh, in chapter 24 of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Jesus has already said, I'm going to send my angels to regather Israel. That's the judgment of Israel, you might say. But the, the rest of the people on earth, which is everybody else, because you're either one or the other, you're either a Jew or a Gentile, will be gathered before him at the sheep and the goats judgment and listen to what jesus uh, says when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him then he will sit on the throne of his glory so this is clearly the second coming all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats so obviously it's a metaphor here um, and by the way when he says all nations that's an indication he's talking here about the Gentiles, although the Greek term nations does not always refer to Gentiles. It's not a technical term for Gentiles. 
because uh, it has, there are occasions when it's used to refer to the nation of Israel, such as when Jesus, earlier the same week that he gave the Olivet Discourse, told the Jewish leaders that because of their rejection of him, he's going to take the kingdom from them and give it to a nation worthy of it, which is referring to the future nation of Israel that will receive him in belief. Now, some people who don't interpret the Bible in its literal grammatical historical uh, framework have tried to make a big deal about that and turn that, that Greek word ethnos or nations into a technical term, and they say, well, when Jesus said he's taking it from you, Israel, and giving it to another nation, that's the indication that he rejected Israel altogether, the whole covenant program is canceled, and now the church has replaced Israel and he's giving it to all the rest of the nations. It's not at all what he was saying there. Uh, it's, just, it's, a, it's not a technical term. Nation means nation in the same way it does in English. If I said, you know, uh, of all the nations in the world, there are only a few that are free countries. Well, you know, by the context, I'm referring nations there to every other nation. But if I talk about the nation of the United States of America, blah, 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 you know I'm talking about one nation. So I uh, just wanted to point that out. But here in the context, since he's already talked about how he's going to deal with Israel and bring them back into the land, and by comparing Scripture to Scripture, we know that in order for them to do that, they must first believe, Romans chapter 10. Uh, in this case, especially when he says all nations, uh, he's referring to everybody else. Uh, and so they will be one or the other. They'll be a sheep or a goat. We could also look at the Old Testament Messianic Psalm 110, where we read, The Lord is at your right hand. Notice he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the place with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. That's a reference to the return of Christ to establish the long-awaited kingdom. And when that happens, uh, he's going to separate the sheep from the goat. So if you go back to our uh, you know, macro-level chart here, uh, at the time of the return of Christ, again, it happens in a context. It's at the end of the tribulation in conjunction with the Battle of Armageddon. Everybody still living, because, of course, as we saw when we spent 16 weeks going through the tribulation, there will be much death and bloodshed during that seven-year period. But by the time you get to the end of the seven years, everyone who's still alive uh, can be categorized into, broadly speaking, obviously, believers and unbelievers are either one or the other, right? And then among the believers, there are uh, Jews and Gentiles, and on, among the unbelievers, there are Jews and Gentiles. So if you kind of picture a flow chart. So uh, among the believers, the Gentile believers are the sheep to whom Jesus says, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And they're the ones that enter the kingdom in their physical bodies and are the ones that repopulate uh, the earth through natural means. Um, the Gentile unbelievers are the goats. And they're the ones to whom Jesus says, Depart from me into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So, uh, same thing is, is true of Israel, as we looked at last week. Some within the nation of Israel will be believers, and they will be the ones that are gathered into the land in belief. Some will not be believers, and they'll be the ones that are judged one final time and say, You don't get to be into the kingdom, you're left in outer darkness. Um, but at the start of the kingdom, then, when Christ returns, the only people on earth in their physical bodies uh, will be believers. And, uh, and so it'll be a perfect kingdom for a while until 
those in their mortal bodies start having children, and then those children will be born dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, like everyone else, and then uh, over time they'll need to be saved too. But at the start, it's only believers. Yeah? So every unbeliever is going to be killed? Yes, absolutely, yeah. At the start of the kingdom, there's only believers on the earth. Would you run and get my water? I left it back there. Uh, uh, decoy Dean's trying to steal it back there. So, <laughs> um, JB, another question. Yeah. On your chart, it talk, uh, talks about the sheep and the goats. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned right before that, or in your other chart, it said something about judging Israel. Yeah. I've often heard it refer, referred to as Thank Jesus you, coming back as rescuing Israel. Well, it's both. It's both, right? It's the, mm -hmm. the believing part of Israel. So it's both rescuing and judgment, just as it is with the Gentiles, sheep and goats. The sheep are rescued and get into the kingdom. And the believers have been, by that time, hiding out in caves and fleeing for their lives and trying to survive without having taken the mark of the beast. And so certainly that's a rescue, but it's also a judgment. Absolutely. So the reason I don't have the judgment of Israel on here, and I, I could probably put it on here, is that it's just not specifically spelled out in terms of a judgment. It's just we know it happens. We have the description of him gathering, believing Israel into the land, and we have Old Testament prophecies that talk about when he comes back, you know, or at his establishment of the kingdom. If you're not a believer in Israel, you're rejected. So it's, it's, it happens, but it's not listed as a, as a judgment. So good question. Um, question. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Yeah, let me say that again, because that's twice that we've had that question, which tells me I wasn't being clear. So at the start of the kingdom, let's go back, when Christ comes back, so at this point right here, the live streamers are all thinking I got raptured right now. <laughs> Still here, uh, right here. At that point, going forward, there are only believers on earth. Only believers. Because, why? Because at the sheep and the goats judgment, we know that all Gentiles are categorized into one of two groups. You're either a sheep or a goat. What happens to the goats? Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So they're gone. What happens to Israel? We just looked at it. Let me see if I can get back there. Uh, he says, I will purge the rebels from among you. This is at his return. Uh, I will bring them out of the country where they're in, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. So they don't get in, right? So uh, at the return of Christ, only believers are left on earth physically. Now there's a whole another category of people that will participate in the kingdom. And we talked about this last week. And that is those in their resurrected bodies. So the church, of course, uh, received its the believers of the church age received their glorified bodies at the rapture they are coming back with Christ to help rule and reign in the kingdom but we're not going to have our physical flesh and blood bodies so we're not going to be procreating and repopulating the earth we're still going to very much participate in the kingdom but in a different form same thing is true of Old Testament believers and we looked at that chart of when do we receive our resurrected bodies and for the Old Testament saints uh, and tribulation saints, uh, it's at the second coming, Daniel 12, 2. Uh, in fact, actually, I, I don't think we did get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah, that's my next one. So, sorry, I'm jumping the gun a little bit. But we'll talk about that. But as far as physical, mortal bodies at the return of Christ, all unbelievers 
are gone, not like cease to exist, they're in a place of torment, and all believers enter into the kingdom. Yeah? So in, in the last sentence in Ezekiel 38 here, so is this the moment that the Jews actually believe in Jesus? They actually now, the scales are taken from their eyes, they actually say yes. We crucified him the first time, he's come again, and we accept it. So the question is, is this the moment at the return of Christ when the, the scales are removed and the Jews finally believe? Yes and no. Uh, for many, yes. For many Jews and the national leaders, many of them, yeah, at that moment they'll say, ah, I get it. But many of them have already believed during the previous seven years. So remember, the first people ever saved in the tribulation are all Jews, 144,000. So they believed, you know, seven years earlier. Uh, and then as they go throughout the world, presumably there are many Jews getting saved throughout the seven years, but there will be a whole host, in, in my view, and I can't think of a scripture off the top of my head that would kind of validate this in terms of degree of how many, but it, it's my sense that at the second coming, that's when many Jews at that moment, the scales will be removed, to use your phrase, and they'll believe but there will have already been many Jews that have already been saved prior to that, some of whom will have been martyred, too. So they'll be resurrected at the second coming. And then, Anna, did you have a question? Or did well, I? Just when you were saying that um, it's only believers into the, through the kingdom or something, it was like for a while. Correct, yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah, so at the beginning of the kingdom, it's only believers and then as the believers that enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies, the ones that survive the tribulation, uh, remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, he who endures until the end, that is he who survives until the end, will be delivered into the kingdom, Matthew 24, 13. But they will have children, and their children, like all children born, will be born dead in their trespasses and sins, and they, like all children, need to believe the gospel. So they either will or they won't. Uh, they're by the end of the millennium, by the end of that first thousand years after the return of Christ, uh, there will be a whole host of unbelievers that uh, uh, conspire with Satan after he's let out of prison for one final battle. So we're going to get to our discussion of the millennium and the kingdom and, and what it's all about as we continue this uh, study. But just to kind of tell you what I'm going to tell you, the, one of the purposes of the millennium is to show mankind that even under the most ideal conditions where Satan is largely bound up, uh, everything is just and righteous and perfect, uh, the heart of man is desperately wicked and, and, and people will still reject uh, the, the payment of, that Christ made on their behalf, which is utterly astounding to me, but that's, that's how desperately wicked man's heart is. Yeah. Correct. Then there's some period, like a nanosecond or a day or whatever, where somebody can say, I see him and I believe, or I see him and I don't believe. Yeah, so that's a great question, and, and we're kind of parsing it fairly narrowly, narrowly at this <laughs> point. But the return of Christ is an event, right? And, and we're, we're studying it right now. And there are a lot, you know, you've got the Battle of Armageddon, you've got the church riding with him on white horses. It's not just like the rapture that happens in the twinkling of an eye. Okay. The rapture 
We know it happens instantaneously in the twinkling of an eye, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. But the second coming is an event. And in conjunction with that event, you know, Jesus, of course, uh, gave two whole chapters in Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25. It's also in Mark and Luke, but the largest uh, retelling of it is in Matthew's account uh, of, of what are the signs of my coming? You know, what, what can we look for? How will we know when you're returning? And the biggest signs are those that immediately accompany his return. Like, we'll see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. I'm doing that because a lot of people think it's a cross. We don't know what the sign is. Uh, the lightning flashing from the east to the west. Uh, that earthquake like never before. And it's in conjunction with all those events that I believe anybody who hasn't been saved yet will have one final time to place their faith in Christ. Uh, I don't know that we really can you know, go to the level of detail of what, when is it, you know, too late when his feet touch the ground or, yeah, but, but at some point they're going to either believe or they're not going to believe. But good question. Yeah. So will those people still be able to get saved if they have the mark of the beast? No, the mark of the beast is only for unbelievers. And so, uh, you know, there could be to, to, to your point, there could be people uh, and, and I believe this is what the Bible teaches, that by the end of the seven years, maybe haven't believed the gospel, but they are, you know, uh, discerning enough in their own human conscience to recognize that this dude is evil. We don't want anything to do with this evil regime. You know, it's similar to what we see today. I mean, let's face it. Um, the, those who have taken a stand against the medical tyranny and this control of virus scandemic, as I've called it all along, uh, you know, are not just believers. There are a lot of unbelievers who recognize, you know, medical doctors, scientists, virologists, hundreds of thousands of experts in their field who say, wait a minute, this is simply not true, and we've got the data to back it up. And so, uh, you know, f as a side note, for believers, this presents an opportunity for us to have a dialogue with them about God's Word and, and about how you know, this is all predicted in Scripture that Satan's trying to take over the world. He's going to use deception, and this is part of the great last day's deception. So, um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't think that uh, it, it's as simple as if you didn't take the mark, you're saved. If you did, you're not. What we can say on the authority of Scripture is if you took the mark, you're not saved. And never, you know, obviously never were saved. It's not like you lose your salvation. It's just it's an indicator that you never believed the gospel. And if you don't take it, you may or may not be saved. And uh, hopefully you will be by the time Christ comes back. So, great questions. Wow. Um, okay, so that's our, uh, third, our fourth was to judge the Gentile nations. Then fifth um, is to resurrect Old Testament and tribulation believers. So this is, this is really a neat uh theological reality that a lot of people don't think much about, but the Old Testament sure taught it, and Old Testament believers sure looked forward to it. One of my favorite references is from the book of Job, so going way back before Israel, when Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And watch this, and after my skin is destroyed, in other words, after I've died, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. In other words, I will be resurrected in my flesh. Now we need to pause and make sure we are on the same page about what we mean when we talk about the resurrection. So uh, all believers 
of all times, when they die, go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. The Bible does not teach anything that a lot of false religions today teach, like soul sleep, where you just you cease existence for thousands of years and then somehow you come back to life. No, our consciousness, our, the real us, our soul, is the way we often use the term in English, although in Greek and Hebrew the word soul doesn't always have to refer to the immaterial aspect of man. It can refer to the physical aspect too, depending on the context. But the real you never ceases consciousness. So what you're looking at right here is a bunch of millions and trillions of atoms pressed together to form a physical material being that looks like this. But that's not me. That's just the tent that I'm in. Right? I could cut off my arm or cut off my leg or change my appearance and I'm still me. Right? So this is just a tent. And if the Lord tarries his coming, this will go the way of all flesh. And it will go back, you know, from dust I became and to dust I return. But I will never lose consciousness. In fact, I, when I, years ago, before I even went to seminary, I did a little gospel track that I uh, created. Uh, and I, 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 the cover of it said, good news, you get to live forever. And then you open it up and says, the question is, where will it be? So the reality is, unbelievers live forever. They just live forever in a place of literal torment called hell. So all human beings, the moment they die, if you're a believer, you go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. If you're an unbeliever, you go immediately to a place of torment. But the Bible teaches, and this is a very important theological principle, that our physical bodies will be reconstituted, resurrected is the term, just as Jesus' body was resurrected, It'll, it'll be glorified so that it's no longer subject to the sin-stricken frailties of the physical atoms. And, and, and the way Paul describes it is this mortal, meaning it's not going to be here forever, will put on immortality, and this, uh, corruption, this corruptible will put on incorruption. It can never, once we get our glorified bodies, it can never be uh, uh, corrupted again. And so that's true of all people. Uh, and you see on this chart here, all unbelievers, they'll be resurrected too. And their physical bodies will be reconstituted, reunited with their soul, which has been in torment, and be cast into the everlasting lake of fire. At the second, it's called the second death. But for the rest of the people, all these believers, it happens at various times. For us, it ha as church-age believers, it happens at the rapture. But one of the reasons Christ returns is to fulfill this great hope that we just read about from Job. Uh, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that in my flesh I shall see God. Uh, Psalm 49, same thing, but God will redeem my soul. Here's where soul in Hebrew is nephesh, in reference to the whole being, from the power of the grave. And so if you don't understand biblical anthropology, the study of man, then you know, reading the Bible in our English translations can really be confusing, and it's led to a lot of bad interpretation where people, again, think that, well, it says you're going to be in the grave, so you're just, when you die, you, 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 go, you go to sleep for a long time, but someday you'll wake up. And so you know, that's where the whole concept of rest in peace comes from, right? from bad theology. Right? They're not resting if they're dead. 
they're very active in heaven, rejoicing, hanging out with Peter and Paul. Uh, check out my uh, video. I think I might have preached it here, but it's called uh, A Glimpse of Heaven, when I give a theology of what heaven's like for people who die that know the Lord. Um, and, uh, and so they're certainly not resting. And then I guarantee you, unbelievers who've died are not resting. They're in torment, right? Remember uh, Luke 16, when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Right? That rich man, did he seem like he was resting? But because people don't understand biblical anthropology and this idea of the distinction between the physical being and our eternal soul and the fact that our physical being might go to the grave or be burned up or lost at sea or whatever, it will be resurrected someday. But our soul never ceases consciousness, never ceases to exist. It's you know, still uh, conscious today. So nobody rests in peace. And I know what we mean by that. It's a cultural thing, and I'm not trying to be too harsh on that, but you just need to understand the history of some of these phrases, right? Um, so, and then here's the passage I talked about earlier, Daniel 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay, don't get hung up on the phrase many as if some won't. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Uh, and then Isaiah 26, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall uh, arise. This is one of the uh, key passages that I put on my chart about the resurrection of Old Testament saints. Awake and sing, you, will, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. What a poetic way of talking about the resurrection, right? Uh, by the way, we saw a foreshadowing or foretaste of this at the resurrection of Christ. Remember that bizarre account in the Gospels that when Christ rose from the dead, a bunch of other graves in the area opened up and, uh, and, and were, uh, you know, people came out of the graves? The Bible doesn't really tell us why that happened. It's part of a Gospel narrative. It's, it's just what happened. But the best we can do is speculate that it was a foreshadowing of and a reminder of what's going to happen when Christ comes back, right? Um, so then if we go to Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived, meaning they resurrected, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is specifically talking about people who die during the tribulation that are believers, right? But he says, but the rest of the dead, meaning unbelievers, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, what he's talking about at the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Blessed and holy is he who has part in that first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So remember at the end of Revelation, you're dealing with everything happens in the context. You're dealing with, you know, 12 chapters or whatever, 6 to 18, so 13 chapters of tribulation stuff. So when Christ comes back, in the context here of Revelation 20, he's talking specifically near context about those who just died and were persecuted and martyred during the tribulation, believers. And he's saying, you know, they are resurrected, uh, the dead shall live, uh, and so forth, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But everybody else, 
meaning everybody that didn't get saved during the tribulation, at the end of the thousand years, go back to the chart, they will be resurrected and cast into the everlasting lake of fire. So does that, does that make sense? I mean, this is not often taught, and, and I hope it's, it's clear that we need to recognize one of the great promises of Scripture and hope of Scripture is that this body, warts and flaws, uh, you know, deformities, cancers, you know, uh, diabetes, you know, whatever it is, will not always be this way. And, um, you know, of course, as believers, in, while we're topside this earth and living out our lives, waiting for the return of Christ, we're supposed to be good stewards of our body, that this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we all fail in that regard to, some, to a greater degree than others. I'm talking about myself. But the fact of the matter is that regardless... Someday, this body will be replaced with a glorified body. And, and what a joy that's going to be. And uh, so we need to understand the, di the distinction there between the physical nature of man and the immaterial nature of man. Yeah. Can you go back one slide? Yeah. I think it was. Yes, this wasn't making sense to me because you had just said that, you know, the ones who were martyred and had died, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so and then it was, well, the rest of the dead, the ones who were the unbelievers, mm -hmm. and then it says, this is the first resurrection, and that didn't make sense to me, but as I looked at my Bible, that first sentence there is in parentheses, and then it made sense. Yeah, so it's one long section, uh, three verses, Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6, and so he's describing those that are resurrected as believers, uh, and we talked about Daniel 12 and the other passages uh, and how they were, uh, they were going to be sitting and ruling and reigning with Christ and how, and he just tells us who they are. They are the ones who were beheaded and so forth. Um, and, uh, so then you go to the next slide. Then you go to the next. And it's like, but the rest of the dead did not live again. So yeah, it's kind of, it is kind of a parenthetical statement, whether it's in parentheses or not. It's, yeah, because otherwise it sounds like the rest of the dead did not live again. This is the first resurrection. Yeah. No, they're not the first resurrection. Yeah, the antecedent of this is everything he's been talking about here. That that but is just a further explanatory clause about what's happening at that time. So and then I think the next sentence sort of helps clarify it because he makes the distinction between the first and second resurrection. He says, You want to be part of the first resurrection, not part of that second resurrection, you know. That, that happens at the end of the thousand years when the thousand years are finished. You see that? No. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, which is the ones who were Christians during the and martyred in the tribulation. And he says, you know, if you're part of that, you're blessed, but you don't want to be part of the second resurrection, which is the rest of the dead did not live. That's the resurrection until the end of the thousand years. So he's talking about a first and second resurrection. Now, if you compare... Scripture with Scripture, there are other references that tells us that this final resurrection of unbelievers is not just for tribulation uh, people who didn't know the Lord. It's anybody who didn't know the Lord. Because at the end of the millennium, uh, we have the great white throne judgment, and we have the destruction of the earth and the beginning of the new heavens and new earth, which are in sinless perfection, and flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So you know, everything is done at that point.
but yeah, in the context of Revelation 20, he's just sort of narrowly focusing on believers and unbelievers of the last seven years. Is this in the chart book? Yeah. So this chart is in our uh, Novel Works book of charts, diagrams, and illustrations, uh, which is available in print or in uh, digital form. Okay, so any more questions about that number five, that he comes back to resurrect Old Testament uh, and tribulation believers? Did you have a question? Yeah, it's a side note. You just mentioned something. I've been talking with some people that are <coughs> always claiming that when the old earth and the old heaven, old earth and heaven are wiped away, that is the old covenant, the old style of, of work, of yeah. who's accounted. Yeah. How does one challenge or combat that idea? So when, when you can take words on a page and make them mean whatever it want, you can't argue. I would just tell them, oh, I think the old heavens and new earth is talking about Bugs Bunny. That's what I would say. <laughs> because I have just as much justification to say that as they do to say that it's talking about the old way of life. I mean, it says heavens and earth. It means heavens and earth. You don't get to arbitrarily assign symbolic meaning to something that the text doesn't allow. But they'll claim some other Old Testament sections use that term, and it's all about judgment of the old way, this passing of this old style of interaction with God. It doesn't. The, Isaiah 65 uses new heavens and new earth, but it's talking about new heavens and new earth. It always means heavens and earth. So if it's, if it's used symbolically, there'll be an internal clue that tells us that. And we just, on Wednesday nights, we're talking about figures of speech. It might say, well, this is like heavens and earthly things, or this is as heavens and earthly things, or you know something like that. But if it's just speaking of the heavens and the earth, it's the heavens and the earth. But those who take that view are replacement theologians, who again, they take the New Testament and read it back into the Old Testament to change the meaning of it. So the church is never mentioned in the Old Testament, but they think the church is mentioned, and they just call it Israel. But uh, you can't, you can't. That's a that's a hermeneutical error, uh, a, a pretty grievous one, because the minute we get to determine what the words mean, rather than letting the words on the page mean what they mean, then it, there's no end to it. So I would just tell them, it, "New heavens and the new earth is Bugs Bunny," and see what they say. You know, because, uh, I mean, they, they're determining that, oh, I think new heavens and earth here means the old way, the old covenant, right? I don't see covenant, anything mentioned there. But, so, and I don't mean to be snide, but I just, I'm trying to make a point that words mean things, and we have to let the words speak for themselves. So, yeah. <clears throat> On Wednesday, you talked about often when you see heavens and earth, that encompasses everything. Right. Everything's changed. Yeah, it's a merism. Yeah. So it's, it's a figure of speech called merism where it uses two contrasting opposite parts to mean everything. And so that's the point, is that the entire created universe is going to be utterly destroyed. Peter talks about the same thing in Second Peter 3, and he connects it to the promise. See, a lot of people miss the significance of Second Peter 3. There's a lot of richness there that's relevant to our discussion on this current events because first of all he says that in the last days people are going to be scoffing and mocking at those who are still waiting for the promise and they're going to say oh you've been thinking he's going to come back for years and he's not okay well we certainly see that today with most churches completely ignoring end times prophecy but he also talks about you know a promise is a prom paraphrasing but he says a promise is a promise essentially that's where he says a day with the lord is like a thousand years 
people have butchered that passage to make it out to be some technical formula. So now every time they see day, they say, see, 2 Peter 3, it's a thousand years. You know, the, the world was created over 7,000 years, not over seven days, 24 hours. It's absurdity. It's a, it's a metaphor he's using to describe the fact that while what we think seems like a long time, and by the way, when Peter was writing in the 60s, it had only been three decades since Christ had walked to the earth and promised to establish his kingdom. And already people were scoffing and mocking. It's been 2,000 years. But his point is, quit trying to look at it through your timetable. God has his timetable. But the overarching principle of 2 Peter 3 is the promise will come. The promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. And, and once it's fulfilled, then God's going to destroy the old heavens and earth, the entire created universe, and recreate it in sinless perfection. I don't know. I think I have a chart here. I hope I put it in here. Yeah, good. So this is, this is the, the big picture of God's plan uh, for human history. So if you think about the universe, God has a plan for the universe. And <clears throat> it started with creation. Then he created the nations after the flood. Then he created Israel with the Abrahamic promise. Then he created the church. But, of course, mankind fell, and so all of that was corrupted. So we see, coming full circle, the redemptive side of God's plan with the rapture of the church, the restoration of Israel, the retribution of the nations. That's what we've been talking about this morning, as the judgment of the nations. And then the redemption of all creation, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And along the way, God has all kinds of plans at work with each other, most notably a plan for individual salvation of man, but he's also got a plan for Israel, he's got a plan for the church, he's got a plan for angels, he's got a plan for demons, he's got a plan for cats, Suzanne, he's got a plan for everything, right? Uh, but what, what replacement theologians do is they take that part in red there, individual, and they, they kind of elevate it to the top. And they say the whole Bible is about God wanting to save you, right? Well, I'm not sure that's true. The whole plan is about God bringing himself glory. That's God's plan. If he wanted to send every sinful man to hell to, in the process, that's his prerogative. He's God. The fact that in his eternal grace and mercy and love, he chose to redeem mankind and make it possible for us to receive forgiveness, that, that's even better. But when, when you overemphasize one element and ignore all the rest, then you, you ignore Israel. And you think, oh, there's no Israel. And then every reference to Israel in the Old Testament is about individual plan. And they call it the scarlet thread of redemption, right? Well, I've got a DVD on the crimson thread where I trace God's redemptive plan through Scripture. Certainly you can trace it in every book of the Bible. But that doesn't mean that every historical event is some type of a symbolic metaphor for individual salvation. There is national salvation too. God has a plan for Israel. He's got a plan for the church. We're going to talk about uh, the purposes for the church and purposes for Israel, but he's also got a plan for angels. Well, how do we know that? We read the verse this morning. Jesus said that the goats are going to be cast into the everlasting fire, what? Prepared for the devil and his angels, right? demons that would be uh, so God's doing a lot along the way but ultimately it's about bringing him glory and ultimately it's the Bible coming full circle to a pre-fall Edenic state uh, of perfection once again 
All right, well, we're out of time for this morning. We'll pick up uh, next time. I forgot what number we were on. Let me go back and look. What number? Five. five. We'll pick up with number five next week. Um, and uh, we'll take a break. We'll start our service at 10 o'clock local time. We'll start our live stream for those live streaming at roughly 1025 to 1030. We only live stream the message, and we don't exactly know when precisely when that's going to start, but typically it's around 1025 or 1030 uh, Mountain Time. Thank you, guys. God bless.